that your grace is sufficient despite whatever level or amount of darkness might exist in the world, God, that you are able to overcome that and you're able to overcome whatever degree of darkness exists in us. And that in order to overcome that, you joyfully and willingly gave your son who endured the cross on our behalf in order to lavish kindness upon us. God, I pray this morning as we continue in our time together, Lord, that we would do so with gratitude. Hearts that are supremely thankful for the fact that though we stood beneath a weight and a debt of sin that we could not ever afford, that Jesus paid that price sufficiently. Though our sins are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Your mercy is more. God, we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. We'll pick up where Bob Vogelar uh, left off last week. He worked down through verse 7 in chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 8 and work our way through 13. While you get situated, uh, I want to start us with a quote. It comes from Augustine, one of the great church fathers. Um, In his Confessions, which is essentially the story of his testimony as well as a Uh, incredible description laying out of the truth of who God is and what the gospel means. Um, He says this. He says, You move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We're going to talk about rest today. We're going to talk about both eternal rest and earthly rest, both of which are found in Christ both of which we enter into by faith, both of which are reliant upon and are a display of trust. And so, if you've got your Bible open there to Hebrews, um, just flip back with me to to the beginning of the book. For me, that's just one page. What I want to do so that we're all on equal footing here as we roll into this is just, I want to run through what we've seen in Hebrews up to this point. So the first paragraph there begins with this incredible description of who Jesus is is. That he is the culmination of God's word, his revelation. That he's the heir of all things, the creator of all things, and the sustainer of all things. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of God's character. He made atonement or propitiation for our sins, purification for our sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. From verse 5 down to the end of chapter 1 is this discussion about the fact that Jesus is superior, he's greater than the angels. And in the beginning of chapter 2, we get kind of the first warning of the book. Given who Jesus is and his superiority to all things, pay attention to what he has to say. Pay attention to who Jesus is. The rest of chapter 2, starting in verse 5, is a discussion of the fact that Jesus, though He is the exact expression of God's character and the radiance of His glory, He's 100% truly God. He is also truly human. 100%. Both exist in their perfect entirety in the person of Jesus. 
Because of that, he can identify with us. And because of that, he suffered, he was tempted, he's able to sympathize or help us when we are tempted. We have flesh and blood in common with Jesus. Chapter 3, therefore, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus, who is not only greater than the angels, but is also greater than Moses. Both were faithful, but Jesus is faithful in an entirely different category. Moses as a servant, Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is greater than Moses. Then, starting in verse 7 down to 19, we get this warning against unbelief or against not having faith. Not listening to Moses in the wilderness meant that the Israelites died there in the desert. They did not have faith in the Word of God through Moses as their mediator. And so, by extension, if Jesus is greater than Moses, how much greater would it be for us to not believe in the Word of God through Jesus, the mediator? Their consequence for the Israelites was death in the desert. The consequence for not believing in Jesus is eternal separation from God. Jesus doesn't just tell us about salvation. He's provided it for us. He doesn't just point us to the promised land. He opened the door to it. He doesn't just offer us rest in a different location, the promised land, rather than the wilderness. He offers us rest in an entirely different eschatological state, which just means in eternity, there's something entirely different for us than what we experience here. What's the key to all of this? Well, last week, Bob showed us that. Hebrews 4, verse 2. For we have also received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. Faith is the key. That is the unified, underlying message in Hebrews up to this point. By faith, we consider Jesus in all things. By faith, we watch out so that we don't have unbelieving hearts. By faith, we encourage one another as members of the church to persevere. By faith, we hear and obey the voice of the Lord. By faith, we are to beware that we, we don't fall short of the eternal rest that God has promised for those who have faith. That leads us to verse 8. If you've got your Bible open, I'm going to read from 8 to 13 in chapter, two, or chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than uh, any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Here's what we're going to do with those verses this morning. I want us to think through these verses sort of in three different lenses. Number one, what does just the text say? That's what we're going to do first. Number two, what truth does it highlight for us or remind us of? So what is kind of the theological truth there? And then number three, what do we do with that today? What's the text say? What's the theological truth? What do we do with this today? Here's the main point. Jesus' work enables our rest. That is both eternal 
and earthly. Here's how we get there. We've seen that Jesus is greater than the angels, chapter 1. We've seen that Jesus is greater than Moses, that was chapter 3. We've seen that Jesus is the perfection of humanity, that was chapter 2. Here in chapter 4, verse 8, we get this very short statement that Jesus is greater than Joshua. Greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Joshua led that second generation of post-Egypt Israelites into the promised land. The first generation passes away in the wilderness due to a lack of faith and unbelief. Moses, who led them out of Egypt, is taken up onto a mountain in Deuteronomy chapter 34. He gets to look across the Jordan River. He can see the city of Jericho in the promised land, but he doesn't get to go in. And leadership is transferred there from Moses to Joshua, who's going to be their new leader and their new mediator, and he's going to be the one to take them to the promised land. And he leads them across the Jordan River, the start of the book of Joshua, in this moment that's to remind us of Moses leading the Israelites across the, or through the Red Sea, the Jordan River parts, and the Israelites go walking through there, and Joshua is at the head. But here's the truth. All Joshua could do was change Israel's location. He could not change their hearts. They get into the promised land, and their unbelief and their restlessness, as is evidenced by their their idolatry and their disobedience, is just like it was in the wilderness. There's no change there. And that Restlessness and unbelief, that idolatry and disobedience, it culminates eventually in their exile from the promised land. Albert Muller says it this way, When the people of Israel journeyed across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, they did not journey into rest. They simply moved from one place to another. If you were here last week, Bob gave a fantastic illustration about grade point averages. If you got one B, in your freshman year, in high school or in college, how many A's would it take you in order to get to a 4.0? You couldn't do it. No amount of A's could ever get you back to that perfect 4.0 unblemished record. Joshua, despite the Israelites' disobedience, and he leads them into the promised land to extend that illustration. He could change all of their classes into the easiest classes available where the Israelites get A's forevermore, but a million A's behind that one B would never get them back to 4.0. It could not happen. But Jesus is greater than Joshua. He not only leads us into rest, he's blown the doors open to it by his death and resurrection. When that stone rolled away from the tomb to let Jesus out of the grips of death, it opened wide in order for us to enter into the glory of his rest. Jesus is greater than Joshua, who could do no more than change his people's location. Jesus has changed our hearts from death to life, from stone to flesh. Jesus has changed our eternity. He offers rest for our souls. That's verse 9. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. 
Rest from feeling like we have to prove our own righteousness. Rest from feeling like we have to do enough in order to be saved. Verse 10. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. We can rest from our work as the means by which we think we're going to save ourselves. Verse 10. We can rest. Two Yeshua's. That's what the Hebrew name for Joshua is. There's Joshua, the son of Nun, and there's Yeshua, Joshua, the son of God. Yeshua, the son of Nun, could lead the Israelite people, be a mediator for them, take them into the promised land, but he could not change their hearts and give them the eternal rest that their souls desired. Jesus, on the other hand, the son of God, has done that on our behalf. And in response, what does verse 11 say that we should do? Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. See the dichotomy there. All of Hebrews chapter 4 is about rest. Verse 11 tells us what we're supposed to do. You can have this rest. You don't have to work. There's rest for your soul. Verse 11 Be super diligent to make sure you enter into it. That's what the translation is. Be eager. Be zealous. Strive. Hurry. Hasten. Be diligent. In fact, that, make every effort, that word in Greek is the first word of the sentence. That's where the emphasis is. What are we making every effort to do? To enter into rest. And how do we do that? Hebrews 4, verse 2. We unite the message of the gospel with faith. It's not about being righteous enough. It's not about attending church enough. It's not about the number of programs that you go to over the course of your life. It's about grace received through faith. The message of the gospel must be united to faith. That's how we enter rest. We could put forth a lot of ways to try to define what faith is. Uh, I want to offer what is just a simple little equation here, that faith is belief plus trust. You've got to believe the facts of the gospel, that Jesus Christ existed, was who he said he was, lived sinlessly, died in the place of sinners, resurrected on the third day. Those are the facts. We need to believe those. But then we also need to have trust in some things that we cannot see. We can't see the forgiveness of our sin. But part of faith is trusting that that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's given to us. I can show you, you can look at in the Gospels, the facts of Jesus' life. That's belief. You've got to trust that your salvation has been secured by Him. Faith is belief plus trust. We need to believe in the truth of the gospel. We also need to trust in the truths of the gospel. And we're to make every effort to be sure we do one thing. Guard that faith. Enter into that faith. That's the repeated message of Hebrews. Verse 12. For, or... Because 
The word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of joint and marrow, or soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's a very familiar verse to church people. We use it when we talk about the word of God, and rightfully so, but very rarely do we actually catch it in the run in which it appears in Scripture. It's, it's highlighting something specific. Yes, the word of God is living and active. That applies to all things. But specifically here, what is it living and active in order to do? Bring us into rest. Illuminate for us that we need a Savior. Highlight our intentions and motivations. Show us that Jesus is the means by which we can enter into rest. God's word is active searching us, penetrating to the very core of who we are, exposing our thoughts, our motives, shining light on all the dark places within our hearts in order to bring us into rest, to faith in Jesus. Now we need to do our part, read the word with humility, allow it to search us, think deeply upon it, pray that the Holy Spirit would empower it to transform us, and we can be absolutely certain that it will do just that if we will bend ourselves before it. There's this rest available for God's people. We enter into it by faith, and the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword in order to move us into that place. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word is active, searching us. His judgments are accurate, searching us. What's verse 13 say? That every creature, all things, are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Go to the Garden of Eden with me here. Think of the silliness of the moment immediately following the first sin. Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree. They realize they're naked. They dive into the bushes in order to hide from each other and from God, who's walking in the cool of the garden. And as they're in the bushes, hiding their naked bodies from his watching eyes, he's reading their naked and exposed hearts. Good luck in the bushes. The omniscient eyes of God there care not one iota about the presence of the leaves of the bushes. They're naked and exposed. All of us are naked and exposed to his gaze. We do that same sort of hiding today. We think we can hide from the searching, righteously judging eyes of the Lord, but we cannot. In the run here of Hebrews, what is this saying? Nothing is slipping by God unseen. Now that's not as though he's up in heaven looking down on us, waiting to kind of thump us on the head when we sin. It's to say that no human being who's got that B on their report card is going to slip by as if they had a 4.0. There's only one way to receive that perfect grade card, and that's to have it given to you by Jesus Christ. 
and his merit. We receive that by grace, grace through faith in him. There's a rest available. Joshua couldn't get his people into it, but Jesus can. And we enter into that by faith. And when we do so, we can lay down all of our striving and all of our working to save ourselves and just rest in the truth of who Jesus Christ is. The Word of God will lead us to that place and the judgment of God will separate out who has and who has not at the end of all things. That's the text. There's Hebrews 4, 8 to 13. What truth is this highlighting for us? I want to make two statements here. One that's theological about God and one that's anthropological about humanity. God rests out of his work. God rests out of his work. The Bible begins in what is God doing? He's at work, creating. The gospel accounts begin in what is God doing? He's at work, orchestrating the life and events of Jesus. Jesus' life progresses in what is he doing? He's at work, serving, fulfilling his purpose. God works. His word and his will go out and they accomplish all that he desires. He never fails. His word is always effective. His will will always prevail. And out of that work, God rests. He creates for six days and then what does he do? Rests. Jesus accomplishes our salvation on the cross, resurrects from the grave, ascends into heaven, and what does he do? Hebrews 1.3 tells us, he made purification for sins and then he sat down. He rests. He has nothing to prove at this point. He need not prove his glory in the world around us because it's evident by creation. He need not do anything to save us at this point because he's already done it on the cross. He rests. Now, that rest is active. God isn't sitting on his throne being fed grapes by a servant or something. He's still upholding and sustaining the universe. He's still sovereign, omniscient, and omnipotent. But the work of creating is done. The work of accomplishing salvation is done. The work of undoing the power of Satan, Hebrews chapter 2, is done. And so he rests. One commentator, Kent Hughes, says it this way, God finished his great work and rested, but it is not a cessation from work, rather the proper response from completing a glorious task. God rests out of his work. What about us? We're the opposite. We work out of our rest. You know what day one was for Adam and Eve? God creates everything lays everything out, creates Adam and Eve, declares that it is very good, and then he says, let's all take a break. Adam and Eve open up their eyes. They get breath breathed into their lungs, and God says, let's stop for a minute. Let's take a break. Let's rest together. He provided everything for them. There was nothing they needed to do. Think about us. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. We're given new life in Him. It is provided for us, everything we need. We don't have to do anything to accomplish it for ourselves. And what do we step into? Rest. We step into rest. And out of that rest, we work. All of our obedient action is done not to earn something, but because we can rest in what has been earned for us. We're obedient And Hebrews is very clear 
that our obedience is an obvious display of our belief. We're obedient because we have nothing to prove. It's a loving response to what's been done for us. Think of Adam and Eve again. Everything's provided for them there in the garden. And God says, name the animals, tend the garden, be fruitful and multiply. Make obvious my glory and my name in this whole place. I've given you everything you need in order to do that. And the same is true for us today. He's given us everything we need. We rest in what has been provided for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. And then out of that, we work to make his glory known. We proclaim his glory with our lips. We display his glory with our lives. We declare it by our very being and existence. But it starts with resting in Jesus. We're not working to earn what Jesus has done. He's done it on our behalf. We rest in that by faith. And then there's the freedom to work. Proclaim His glory. Make known the message of the gospel. Live out obediently what He calls us to. God rests out of His work. We work out of our rest. What do we do with this today? Jesus' work enables our rest. That is the big truth here. God works and then rests. We rest by faith, then we work by faith. What do we do with that today? In order to answer that question, we're going to have to come face to face with what is the singular sin in the American church that we celebrate committing more than any other, and that's breaking the Sabbath. There is no sin in American Christianity that we are prouder of committing than the fact that we just run headlong through the command to rest. Think about the last time you truly took a Sabbath. Think about the last time you were grieved about how long ago you truly took a Sabbath. Think about the last time you read a story or you heard an account of somebody who works, you know, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, and they've built some great business or some great empire, right? And our society applauds that. That's what it is to be a hardworking American. And we in the church applaud it too. We don't rest. In fact, we celebrate not resting. As a general warning here over the next 10 minutes, I'm going to just step on everyone's toes. And I'm good with it. Because in a frenetic, burnt-out, overworked, anxiety-ridden society, we need desperately to learn how to rest. My hope is that I step just hard enough on everyone's toes to get your attention so that the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, can bring you in line with what the Son of God has purchased for you. And one of the things he's purchased for you on the cross is rest. Not just eternally, right now. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not just someday far off in the future that you just kind of grind away for your entire life looking forward to an eternity of rest, but that while you look forward for that rest, you can experience it today. That's been purchased for us. In His goodness, 
God has built in the means by which we experience a foretaste of that eternal Sabbath's rest, and that is with the Sabbath. I believe firmly that there are few practices in our daily lives that display in greater clarity our lack of functional trust in God than our inability to stop and rest. I'm going to say that again. It was a long sentence. I believe firmly that there are few practices in our daily lives that display in greater clarity our functional lack of trust in God than our inability to stop and rest. We don't rest because our flesh has convinced us that the entirety of the world will fall apart if we aren't holding up our infinitesimal corner of the universe. The whole thing will just crumble to pieces if I don't hold up my part. I'm passionate about this topic. It's a year ago when I took some sabbatical time in order to get healthy. I needed someone to look at me and say, Tim, you have a sin issue, to which I said, duh. But then for them to lovingly say, and that sin issue is you don't rest. Church, in America, we have a sin issue. We don't rest. We don't know how. And if we're being honest, we really don't care all that much. Rather than doing a deep dive on the biblical command and the model of the Sabbath, I want to jump straight into the practicals. The reason for that being, none of us need me to tell us what the Bible says about taking a day to rest. We know that it says that we should do that. That we should set aside one day every week to rest in the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. The challenge is that, if we're honest, we struggle to trust God enough that He can uphold everything while we stop working. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give four uh, kind of encouragements here. We'd already made the slides on Thursday and they were in the computer by the time I thought I should maybe do these a different way. But they're going to come up as do not statements. That sounds heavier than I meant for it to. I hope that these provide you some freedom. That's the goal. So don't let the do nots sound heavy and burdensome. Frame them positively in your notes if you want to. But here are what I think are four good encouragements for us to actually display our trust in the Lord enough to rest in this lifetime while we look forward to resting in eternity. Number one, do not think that you are the exception. When I started talking about rest, 50 families with young children said, nope, not for me in this season. Maybe when the babies are out of diapers. Maybe when the kids finally can drive. Maybe when they graduate and go to college. Maybe after they finally move out of the house. A number of high-level business leaders or business owners said to themselves, nope, I absolutely cannot do that. I get that rest is important, but if I don't keep working, we won't meet our goals. The business will go under, whatever the case might be. Here's my question. Is Scripture forming that opinion inside of you, or is our society? Which one? You reading the Bible and walking away saying to yourself, 
oh yeah, this, this whole Sabbath thing, that was set aside for different people other than me. Our suburban American refusal to rest is wrecking our lives. Our suburban American refusal to rest is a sin issue. And the first thing your sin does when it's confronted is move into self-preservation mode. It will provide for you a list of a hundred reasons why you could not possibly walk in obedience to the Lord in that area of your life. And so we could go around the room. I could start right over here with the Mannings, and I could work my way all the way around to the Gutierrez. And I could listen to everybody's reasons for why it is that in this particular season of life, it would just be impossible for you to rest. And then I would look at you compassionately, pastorally, and I would say, God wants so much more for you than that terrible excuse. And Scripture would back me up. God wants us to rest. It's a matter of faith, of trust in who He is. If you cracked open a Bible after this service was over when you got home, and you went through all of Scripture and made a list of all the people in the Bible who get an exemption from the Sabbath, it wouldn't contain exactly zero people. God has not given us a command for our good that is infeasible for us to live in obedience to. In fact, what He has commanded, He has fulfilled in Christ, and He will empower inside of us. And so the question is, do you trust the Lord enough to stop and rest? Whatever that first thing was that popped into your mind is the reason why you can't possibly stop and take a Sabbath and enjoy the rest that Jesus bought for you on the cross. I want us to do something with that thing right now. This is going to be super awkward. I'm going to give you a minute or two right now in total silence for you to go before the Lord by yourself and repent of that thing. Name it. Ask the Holy Spirit to crucify that inside of you. If I just trusted that everybody would go from here and do it when you got home, we'd come up with a list of reasons why it is that we forgot to do it. And so it's going to just be silent in here for a couple minutes. And I want to encourage you, whatever excuse it is that you might have for not Sabbathing with the Lord, I want you to confess that. Offer it in repentance and ask the Lord, to put that thing to death inside of you and empower you to walk in obedience.
you've received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.10. You've rested from your own works. You have nothing to prove. Jesus has done that for you. Before the Lord one day, you're not going to have to stand in front of Him and list off a list of reasons why you deserve to enter into His presence for all of eternity. You're going to stand there in that moment and you're just going to plead the name of Jesus Christ and it's going to be totally sufficient for you. Let me give you some freedom here. You have nothing to prove to anyone else either. Is it going to look weird? You pause for 24 hours and do no work while the rest of American society rushes on at a frenetic pace? Yeah, it's going to look a little bit weird but you don't have anything to prove to them. You've rested from your work, and you're resting in Him. There's no award in heaven for the person that was busiest. That doesn't exist. Rest. Look forward to resting for eternity by learning to rest here and now. Number two, do not turn the Sabbath into a list of rules, he says, while giving four rules. I realize that. You know who was great at turning the Sabbath into a list of rules? The Pharisees. You can read the Gospels and see what Jesus thought of that. So not turning this into a list of rules, what does that mean? It means don't be legalistic about the day. I work on Sundays. It's a busy day for me. So I don't Sabbath on Sundays. I Sabbath on Saturday. That's totally fine. Maybe you work on the weekends and it works best for you to Sabbath on a Tuesday. Fantastic. Sabbath on Tuesday. Maybe one week it works really well for you to Sabbath on Saturday, but the next Saturday, little Jimmy's got 14 soccer games. And you say to yourself, that sounds nothing like rest. Sabbath a different day. It's okay. Don't get hung up on, was I 24 hours down to the minute? Take a step faithfully in the right direction toward resting and trust that even if you're not perfect at it, a faithful step of obedience is better than willfully continuing to walk in disobedience. The place that had to basically teach my wife and I how it is to Sabbath taught us to approach the Sabbath by simply asking the following question. What would help me rest in God's grace today? What would help me rest in God's grace today? So don't turn it into a list of rules. Let me just give you an example. Let me tell you how I will never answer that question. What would help me rest in God's grace today? Yard work. (laughs) At no point is that going to be something that I look forward to just cherishing in the presence of the Lord. That might be different for you. You might be someone who just really loves to be outside to work with your hands, to enjoy God's creation, then by all means, rake those leaves today. I don't care. And do it to the glory of God. That's fantastic. I'm taking a nap. That's what's going to help me rest in God's grace any day of the week. Don't get legalistic about what is it that we can or we can't do. So, Melody and I Sabbath from Friday at dusk until Saturday at dusk, nightfall to nightfall. And at the beginning of that, we just simply ask each other the question every time, what would help you rest in God's grace today? And then we, we answer honestly, and we try to build the space in to do those things. Sometimes it's going somewhere and just taking a walk outside. Sometimes it's very literally just, 
I need to sleep. I'm tired. Sometimes it's, let's make an agreement that we're going to leave the phones upstairs in our bedroom all day long and we're just not going to look at them. What would help you rest in God's grace? Answer that question and then enjoy that for 24 hours. Number three, do not think of the Sabbath as an excuse to treat yourself. The Sabbath is absolutely all about indulging. It's about indulging your soul, not your flesh. It's about feasting on the goodness of God, not the things of this earth. And so I say that primarily to say this. Your answer to what would help me rest in the grace of God cannot be something that would be contrary to God's will for his people. You can't convince yourself that what would be really wonderful for resting in God's grace today would be something that is obviously sinful. That's not how it works. We enjoy God's grace. The way we do that best is by living how it is that he has called us to live. So it doesn't mean that you need to schedule out for your Sabbath 24 hours of Bible study doesn't have to be that. If I told you that's what the Sabbath was, or if the scripture said that's what the Sabbath was, you would hear a bunch of groans from God's people, right? Rather than a bunch of sighs of relief and exclamation about how wonderful this is. You're just enjoying God's grace in his presence, but it's not an excuse to treat your flesh. Last, do not compromise. Do not compromise. Sabbath this week, maybe you go home and you decide, you know what, we're going to do this today. We're going to make an attempt to really rest and enjoy God's presence for the rest of today, and the next week is going to roll around, and you will have to commit anew to that. Make every effort. In the same way that we make every effort to take hold of grace by faith and just to cling to the cross, to consider Jesus in all things, to keep him before our eyes in all things, to encourage one another to persevere in the faith. In the same way that we make every effort to do that, make every effort to enjoy God's rest in the here and now. It's waiting for you in eternity, in all of its perfection, but it's held out to us thanks to Jesus Christ, and we can have a foretaste of it now. Make every effort to enjoy that. Experience it. Weekly. Feast on the goodness and the grace and the rest of the Lord. You've entered into God's rest thanks to the work of Christ. Jesus' work enables our rest. Don't live like that isn't true. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us and we'll go. God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come to you and your word to be reminded that Jesus' work on the cross has paved the way for us to enter into your eternal rest. God, I pray that each and every person in here over the course of this morning would have faith in the truth of who Jesus is, belief and trust in the work of Jesus Christ, Lord, and that they would enter into your rest. God, I pray for each and every one of us in here that we would learn to experience that in the here and now, that we would display our trust in you by learning to rest in you. 
God, I pray for each person in this congregation. Lord, would your Holy Spirit take hold of them and wrestle them into obedience to this. Crucify within them whatever excuse there might be for not resting. Lord, would you put within all of us a hatred for our own propensity to not rest? God, I pray you would teach us to see that as sin and to treat it as such. And then, Lord, would you show us the beauty of resting in Jesus? God, help our hearts to cling to that, to love that you've commanded that we rest and that it's for our good and that Jesus has paid the price in order to make it possible both eternally and here today. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.